one is in the books. Arizona State upends Northern Arizona 44-13 in its first game of the regular season. Welcome into the Sun Devil Source Report podcast alongside Sun Devil Source publisher Chris Cartman. I'm your host, Kerry Crowley. Plenty to talk about this week. Arizona State 1-0 moving on to Texas Tech, but for the most part, Chris, we will recap this NAU game, talk about our takeaways from the contest for Arizona State and Todd Graham's squad. And really, the first thing we need to get going on is talking about Chip Lindsey, his second game as Arizona State's offensive coordinator, but really his first in in terms of ability to assimilate his own offensive scheme. Last year, he was working in the bowl game with Arizona State's players, kind of building the bridge between Mike Norvell and Chip Lindsey. And this time, it was Lindsey's offense, and there was plenty to take away from that. Contrast between Chip Lindsay and Mike Norvell was one of the, my biggest takeaways from this game. Uh, we always got a sense with Mike Norvell that he was looking for the big play even when it wasn't needed. And I didn't see that at all with Chip Lindsay. He really shrunk things down, made the game easier for his offense, knew that they would be able to physically impose their will over the long haul. Uh, we saw 46 run plays, I believe, as a result of that. Uh, and And... Uh, no high risk anything whatsoever. Um, just everything was very just kind of straightforward. They kept it r- r- really plain. Part of that probably is not wanting to show things to the subsequent opponents like Texas Tech. But I think that that's just the nature of Chip Lindsey. I think his disposition is, hey, if this is how we're going to be able to beat you in the long run, this is what we're going to do. And that isn't the way that Mike Norvell was whatsoever. I think that there was just too many times in his tenure at ASU where he was trying to take shots down the field and low percentage plays that weren't necessary. I think Chip Lindsey wanted to send a message with his first drive of the game. Arizona State started out, they won the toss, and then elected to receive, which is something that we've seen through the years when the offensive coordinator in the past, it's been Mike Norbell, could tell Todd Graham that he thinks they're going to score a touchdown on the opening series, and that's exactly what Arizona State did. Despite all the first half struggles it had on offense, the Sun Devils went down the field and had no problem running the ball down the throats of Northern Arizona right into the end zone. Seven straight run plays. The tempo was otherworldly. That was the fastest we've probably seen ASU even ever play under Todd Graham. And what I noticed rewatching the game was even the TV crew wasn't set because there were a number of times where they were showing the replay. You come back to live and the next play is already going on. That's usually a sign of the tempo being hyperspeed. Now let's talk about Manny Wilkins, Arizona State starting quarterback, the sophomore, through his first collegiate pass, but it wasn't until the next drive. He got out there, was running the ball, running the read option at the beginning, and it really looked like Chip Lindsey wanted to make things easy on Wilkins from the get-go. I, yeah, I think the, 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 all the run plays right at the outset, seven in a row, that's obviously scripted offense where that's kind of what you've decided you're going to come out and do. Uh, and then... Uh, I think a lot of the early throws were just to kind of test where Wilkins was at, see what he was going to be capable of. This is a RPO-heavy offense, run-pass option. So you see Manny Wilkins pulling some of those. Some of those he's handing off to the running back. Then you have a guy who's usually motioning into the flat with uh, one or more blockers ahead of him. Uh, All of that's kind of run replacement type, easy stuff. Manny Wilkins was 20 of 27, seven missed throws on the night. But you don't look at it and say that he had a very good performance. And the reason being is because it had to be so shrunken down for him uh, in light of just some of the 
uh, questions that we had about Wilkins coming into the season. Now, to put that in perspective, 20 completions, but only 180 passing yards for Wilkins. And what what that's a sign of is run replacement style plays. You saw a situation where he threw a pass to Nikhil Harry that was actually a backwards pass and later ruled a rush. And those types of passes were pretty common. We saw a lot of bubble screens from Arizona State. And when you have athletes like Tim White on the outside, that's something we'll see the whole season, especially with the way Arizona State's receivers block. But in terms of Wilkins' overall performance, what are the strengths, what are the weaknesses that he has from week one moving forward? He's a good athlete. He's quick, but you have to be able to read that adjuster and know when you need to pull the ball when you're in the zone read uh, offense. You can't predetermine where you want to go with the football. I think there was a little bit too much of that. Uh, you have to be able to identify the coverage type. If you look at his interception, for example, they're in a 4-2-5 look, uh, NAU. The, the field side nickel corner hybrid player was clearly in his zone. He wasn't cheating up. There was no disguising what was happening there. He drops back into an easy zone. Manny Wilkins, one, one read right to his target, and the defenders is in a line between he and the receiver. Ball goes right to him, intercepted. I think from that point, we saw Chip Lindsey really shift down and just decide, okay, we're just going to keep this really simple and easy for Manny Wilkins. Another play that I noticed where Manny Wilkins struggled was when he got sacked, kind of a, the, the, the biggest loss, which is what they want to avoid are these losses. Of course, uh, negative yardage plays uh, in which – uh, there were 20 personnel, two running backs cross each other, hot routes, and uh, there was a breakdown at the line of scrimmage from ASU's offensive line. Manny Wilkins saw it coming dead on at him, and he wasn't able to hit the check down Kalen Balazs, who was wide open. That is a sign of him just being a little bit frazzled situationally, and you can't have it. You, ha- you have to have poise, and you have to know where you're going to deliver the football uh, before you even get into the play based upon what you're seeing from a defense. Now, one of our big takeaways from this contest was – Arizona State sticking with Manny Wilkins. He wasn't announced as the starter publicly until Friday, but we had a really good sense after that August 20th scrimmage. He'd led the competition throughout the spring and through fall camp, but that was the day where he separated himself from Brady White, and Brady White only had one opportunity to see the field in the end in garbage time. Arizona State had a 3-4 touchdown lead at that point, but Brady White's efficiency, pretty remarkable, Chris. Well, of course, I think the game was the game was completely decided, obviously, at that point. But handing the ball out to Nick Ralston for that touchdown, I think everybody was kind of just in let's get this over mode. Uh, I I do think that even though Manny Wilkins uh, won the game for ASU 20-27, uh, and they'll move on to Texas Tech, and Texas Tech could be a high-scoring affair, the question still remains about quarterback with this team. Are we going to see more of Brady White? Could they even possibly consider Dylan Serling Cole? Uh, just given his long-term potential and what looks to be a transitional season for ASU, I think that it's all on the table as a possibility for ASU. I, I don't know that they're going to get really strong play from the quarterback at any point this season. Now, one final note I do want to make on Chip Lindsey is we talked so much in the preseason about Arizona State having more 11 personnel sets this year because that's really what Lindsey brought over from Southern Miss last year. And they did mix in some 12 personnel. They threw a play of 10 personnel. They had a few plays in 20 personnel. But one of my big takeaways was in all 15 third-down situations for Arizona State, they used 11 personnel. 
Yeah, we really did a good job. I think uh, this this game of charting uh, all the down and distance situations, uh, and and I think that shows you that his comfort zone is in that eleven personnel. I will say though, carry on the Nikhil Harry uh, pass that was really a run uh, because it was a, a lateral. They had. Uh, two tight ends out blocking and both of those guys were flexed out so the versatility of Raymond Epps and Cody Cole it give an advantage to Chip Lindsay that he may increasingly become more comfortable with as the season wears on but it's just not his natural uh, tendency and that's why I think again for game one uh, he just went with what is familiar and very comfortable for him. Chip Lindsay was new Manny Wilkins was new and four offensive linemen were new for Arizona State in this game. Evan Goodman, the only returning starter, so an opportunity for us to evaluate the play of left guard Sam Jones, center Stephon McCray, right guard Quinn Bailey, and right tackle Zach Robertson. And three of those players in Jones, Bailey, and Robertson, sophomores are younger. Yeah, I felt there was too many opportunities that NAU had where they just came clean through the line of scrimmage on pass pros, a, a lack of uh, communication and identification of who those guys needed to be blocking. And it wasn't really challenging stuff that they were presenting. It wasn't twist games and these uh, unusual stunts and, and, and things of that nature. Uh, just a couple guys came right through clean. I noticed both guards uh, gave it up. You, you always want to look to see if an offensive lineman is turned with his back to the play. That's a really bad sign. And in particular, if the quarterback's on his back. And we, there was a couple times, and even Todd Graham mentioned that that was something that they're going to have to really work on improving from game one to game two. Athletically, I feel like these guys are more than capable. Is uh, The only question mark would probably be right tackle handling speed. Uh, Evan Goodman looked like the best guy out there. Of course, he's the most experienced, but even he had some reps that weren't great. But Zach Robertson on the right side, as soon as you get a better pass rush capability, especially on nickel downs in the Pac-12, there's going to be some challenges there, I think. So the good news for Arizona State's offensive line, we touched on this on our last podcast, is that it really won't play a very complex defensive scheme, at least until USC and Clancy Pendergast in week, I believe it's five by the time ASU is actually playing USC. And USC has a lot of work to do. A lot of work to do, especially after that opening week loss to Alabama. We'll touch on that later. But what can Arizona State's offensive linemen focus on moving forward over the, the course of the next month to really prepare for conference play? So much of it is not just you knowing your individual assignment, but how you work and coordinate with the person next to you. A lot of these zone blocking types plays require you to help on a defender before you climb up to that second level and we just didn't see enough of that I think you need to get a helmet on a helmet and you need to get up there so that those linebackers aren't able to come free and make plays on your running backs we've talked a lot about the strength of this ASU's team being Demario Richard and Kalen Balaj. those guys need to be able to shoot through that first level and be able to make that linebacker miss in space or have a linebacker who's blocked and just come clean vertically through the hole how many times did that happen against NAU almost not at all and one of the things we did learn is that if Arizona State's running backs, Demario Richard, Kalen Balaj, Nick Ralston, are able to get through that first level, there are some excellent blockers at the second level because this wide receiving corps, that was one of our biggest takeaways, is how well that group blocked down the field and on the perimeter. And that's so important, especially when you have a younger quarterback and you're not sure exactly what you're getting from him. And the way that they run so many of these bubble screens, RPO type stuff, it's comfort in knowing that you're going to have guys who are blocking out in front in space who are able to get on and then sustain those blocks for enough time to let your athletes get get through some of those opportunities. And uh, we talked a lot after the game in some of our now 
analysis about ASU having plenty of weapons. They, they really do. Todd Graham even mentioned it in the press conference after. And Tim White, Nikhil Harry, Jalen Harvey, Balage and what he's able to in the open field and Demario Richard, that part of ASU's offense is fine. It's just, are you going to be able to get the ball down the field enough to expand upon the full capability of your playbook that we don't know. And it's really not just blocking in the running game that's going to be especially critical for these receivers. This 11 personnel grouping that we're seeing a lot from ASU so far and that we will see a lot from ASU during the course of the regular season is a lot of predicated on can a receiver get to the edge and set a block on a bubble screen? Can a receiver help a jailbreak screen with a block? So Jalen Harvey, maybe he's better suited for the slot in some offenses, but in this Arizona State offense, he might be better suited for the perimeter just because you throw Tim White on that bubble screen, and Harvey's really one of your best blockers out there. He came right out of the gate on that first series when they mm-hmm. ran the ball seven times, and we were in the press box saying maybe they just wanted him out there to show, hey, we're just going to physically wear on you on the perimeter. And Jalen Harvey came out had a Couple, couple great blocks right away. We've talked about how he said, uh, if you don't block, then you don't get an opportunity to play, uh, to catch the football. You don't block, you don't catch the rock, or whatever it was that he said. So I do think that's going to be an improved capability. You look at Jay Norvell, something that he's really, from the outset of fall camp, worked on with those guys and, and preached on a day-to-day basis. And uh, the importance of that, particularly coupled with Cody Cole, Raymond Epps, and their improved size, strength, physicality, element, I think is going to play well uh, for this team. And, and they just need to do whatever they can to take a little bit more pressure off of their young offensive line and quarterback. Now, let's talk a little bit about the running backs. Uh, we've focused a lot in the preseason through training camp on how the breakdown will go between Demario Richard and Kalen Balaj. And on Saturday night against Northern Arizona, Demario Richard, 19 carries for 78 yards. Kalen Balaj, 10 carries for 58 yards. But he did have that long 30-yard touchdown run that helped boost his stats. So Richard finished with 4.1 yards per carry. Balaj, 5.6 yards per carry. Is that about what you expected? Probably. Uh, Kalen Balaj looks so electric to me, and we've talked about just the two seasons now where he's come into the year with a bad luck situation or just not totally healthy. Uh, last year with the mono, the year before, he had some flexibility and core strength issues that he had to address. The guy is a blur for his size at 230 pounds or whatever he is and now it's like can you get him into the open field to where he can really take advantage of having that speed and creatively how do you figure out how to do that I thought maybe we would see some more stretch zone blocking Mm -hmm. some more of these longer sweeps where he could get his foot in the ground and then be able to get up the field we really didn't see some of that maybe that was Chip Lindsay saying we're going to hold off on some of these things to our subsequent opponent and Demario Richards the type of guy where you're just going to be able to fit physically wear on an, an opponent. They wanted to just break down NAU, and then they had some uh, pretty good success in the second half running the football, I think, as a result of that. Two runs that stood out to me in this game, one for Demario Richard. I believe it was a third and two situation. He stuffed at the line of scrimmage, really a yard short, and just lowers the shoulder, bulldozes over an NAU defender. Just really impressive physicality for Yeah, me. remember the play where uh, there was like, a rugby scrum of almost the whole team and Demario Richard comes out of that thing untackled and then he keeps kind of high steps his knees and says you can't tackle me and the guy's a 500 plus pound squatter he drags people his yards after contact has been good and I think that's an underappreciated thing about a guy like this when you have uh, an offensive line that's not 
performing at the at the highest level. Now, the other run that stood out to me was Kalen Balazs' 30-yard touchdown run, and for this reason, it was an inside zone running play, and if Kalen Balazs, who's really more ideally suited to those outside runs, those buck sweeps, is able to run the ball inside, it opens up the playbook for Arizona State. That was one of those rare times when he got on that second level and just exploded uh, through the end zone. I think at that point, NAU maybe was not as all the way there from a physicality and mental standpoint in the game because I think the game was kind of clearly headed in direction of ASU winning by multiple touchdowns. But yeah, and that's what you need to see more of because that's what then forces teams to bring an extra guy into the box, especially given Kalen Balaj's size. And then that's based upon what Chip Lindsay's looking at is, do we have a numbers advantage in the box or do we have a numbers advantage to get the ball on the perimeter? He wants to be able to manipulate the situation based upon what defenses are doing. And that component enables you to do it. So that's Arizona State's offense, 44 points, but it took a while to get going. The Sun Devils scored on their final six possessions of the game. Let's move to the defensive side of the ball where, kind of unexpectedly so, for us at least, the play calling was a little more vanilla. We knew that ASU wouldn't open the playbook completely against NAU, but I think NAU's offensive scheme had a little bit to do with the way Keith Patterson called his defense. When we had Patterson on the podcast, uh, Media Day, he candidly said, I think my strengths are Todd Graham's weaknesses and vice versa. Uh, and you just don't know when he's going to be calling it, whether Todd Graham's going to be over his shoulder and whispering in his ear, let's blitz, let's blitz, let's blitz, <laughs> because Todd Graham is just such a hyper-aggressive guy. I think Keith Patterson did a smart thing because Graham mentioned after the game that they talked and they decided we're not going to even blitz until they score a touchdown. It was a predetermined nation of when they were going to blitz, which then is hard for Todd Graham to to sort of overrule as the game's unfolding. So I think that was smart. I think it also was an attempt by them to not show too much of what they're trying to do defensively this year for Texas Tech and subsequent opponents. I don't know that they're going to be able to get on Texas Tech's quarterback anyways with how quickly they throw the ball. And, and how we, elusive he is and as how well. Elu- right, exactly. And, and that style of offense has given ASU problems in the past, just given the way that they've given up slants and not been able to force uh, some of those outside receivers outside based upon the techniques that they're playing but I think the cover three was interesting we saw it at the beginning of preseason camp and we kind of wondered are they hey are they going to show a lot of that uh, early in the season are they going to do it at all I don't know that that's the best style of defense for their personnel I'm still trying to figure that out as we go along because you don't have a true elite coverage safety like a Demarius Randall who has true sideline to sideline range on the back end. I think Armand Perry is a really good player, but he's more of a uh, in-the-box type of a safety, I think. Overall, he loves playing against the run. Uh, When you're able to get him into tighter quarters, he's extremely effective, and there's no other safety who really services that type of role now that you move Kareem or to cornerback. So... That's interesting, but the play calling, both on offense and on defense, was different than what we've seen in the past and something that's going to be worth monitoring as this year progresses. Now, something that likely impacted the play calling for Arizona State was the suspensions. Salamo Fiso was out. He was suspended. Viliami Latu was suspended. Laiu Mokiola wasn't suspended, but he was unable to play because of an injury that has hampered him through camp. He had a hamstring issue. He said on Wednesday of last week that he was good to go. He was probably ready to play, but Arizona State wasn't going to need him against Northern Arizona, so he was held out of the lineup. And those three players are three of the top communicators on the field. 
all three at different levels of the defense. Latu on the defensive line, Fiso in the middle, and Mokiola at the back end. And that certainly impacted what Arizona State was able to do defensively. I think it did impact it, but if they had to make that adjustment in a one-week basis because you had all of a sudden three guys go down, it's very different than knowing all of preseason camp our first game, we're going to be without Fiso, Mokiola, and Latu. And so in light of that, that might have helped them because then you're spending that month preparing the other guys for those roles, which then they may need to fill anyways if you do have injuries or you have to kind of reshuffle the deck with some of your personnel. Uh, I think they communicated things relatively effectively, all things considered. They didn't use nickel personnel a whole lot in that Just game. Just six plays overall. Right. Which All in the first half. Which kind of is surprising also because that is a sign of them kind of adjusting to what they're seeing, maybe even a little bit more, playing a little bit more uh, of a different type of a style uh, than they had in the past because normally you see them go to nickel and then just blitz at everyone and just try to cover with cover zero or cover one. So they weren't really doing that, um, which I think that might have been a savvy thing. But I don't know what to really make about this defense in light of the fact that they didn't have three of their top players plus – how about not having Christian Sam when he goes down for with an ankle injury that we presume to be an ankle injury in the first half? How about when Marcus Ball gets knocked out of the game? Basically, have five of your top 11 or 12 defensive players who are out there on the field, and that makes it so that you're not really sure what this defense will look like in subsequent weeks also. And that's the point that I wanted to get to. They knew and could prepare for those three players being out but they really couldn't foresee Christian Sam getting hurt early in the game and then Marcus Ball coming out with the targeting injury. And that left Arizona State's linebacker depth really, really thin because Todd Graham told us after the game that Kalen Thomas was just recently cleared to start playing and they weren't going to throw him in against NAU. So they had to turn to Carlos Mendoza, who had his best game since NAU. (laughs) (laughs) Carlos Mendoza, I felt like he had three or four years of trapped energy in his body that he just released in that game. There was a couple of plays where he just celebrated and it was like relatively routine plays, <laughs> but he was like, "Whoa, yeah, I'm out here. Let's do this." And and it's just, fun to watch. For yeah, sure. it was kind of cool for him because Definitely. he's he's been through so much adversity. He's had myriad injuries and, and gone through a lot, and so for him to get the opportunity uh, uh, in the opener against NAU, I think that was kind of cool to see. For ASU, the good news probably with this whole group right now is you don't need that many linebackers to play against Texas Tech. Um, two really is all that you need as long as you have two good ones who are healthy. And we'll see what happens with Christian Sam as this week progresses. But DJ Calhoun obviously is going to be out there a vast majority of the time. Then you got to find one more guy. They're going to use a hybrid player or maybe even a, a nickel uh true cornerback in that uh, spur role, uh, probably on base downs. And so uh, what they do schematically, are they going to stay playing cover two? I mean, cover three. Are they going to go to just more man across uh, with cover one, depending upon the formation and where they need to kind of feel like they need to put that guy? Are they going to let Gump Hayes just go out there and just check someone? Uh, I'm going to be interested to see how those matchups uh, unfold. And we'll talk more about Texas Tech later in this podcast, but one of the other things that really impacted the way Arizona State called this game was the way NAU 
prepared schematically offensively. Todd Graham said after the game, and this was pretty evident, that the Lumberjacks were using seven and eight-man slide protections on the offensive line to prevent Arizona State's rush from getting to Case Cookus. The Sun Devils were obviously more conservative, four and five-man rushes predominantly, played a lot of cover three in the back end. So what did you take away from, from that breakdown of NAU really preparing for the Arizona State Blitz and sending some of its receivers and Butler and Marks on hero routes? Yeah, a lot of the uh, talk on social media during the game, fans, and maybe even a little bit with the reporters, was, well, ASU's not really getting to Cookus, and we haven't seen JoJo Wicker get really any sacks or other players, Karan Crump, whoever it might be. Well, if you're going to protect with seven guys and ASU's bringing four or five players on the pass rush and you're slight protecting and they were bringing their their H-back around or their running back to the outside to stop against the speed rush while jamming up the interior, that's really hard for you to get to the quarterback. And in Elijah Marks, Emmanuel Butler, and Cookus, NAU has a, a... a, a trio of players at quarterback and receiver who are really good. Those guys can play. Like it wasn't really a huge step from what we've seen at Colorado with some of their big play shots where they slide protect with seven and they have the receivers who are capable down the field. Emmanuel Butler's a returning thousand yard rusher as a sophomore, six foot four, two hundred and fifteen pounds or so. He could play in the Pac twelve. He could start in the Pac twelve. Elijah Marks is another guy who's at least a serviceable Pac twelve level player. Probably number three number Number four option at a lot of schools. At worst, probably, right? And Cookus was accurate down the field, more accurate than probably ASU's quarterbacks down the field or other quarterbacks in the Pac 12. So people look at NAU and they say, oh, it's an FCS opponent and, you know, the Lumberjacks and they shouldn't be able to do that much. But the way that they were playing, you have to respect because they play to their strengths, they scheme and they recruit to it. And then they go out there and they execute it in a really functional way. And I don't think it's going to be that much more challenging against most Pac-12 opponents, save like when you go up against USC and some of these truly elite receivers. So when we look at NAU stats overall, over 350 yards through the air, but a lot of these yards came on a few big plays, and that was one of Arizona State's issues last season, is giving up that long touchdown. NAU did only score 13 points, and seven of those came courtesy of an 87-yard touchdown from Case Cookus. So what can we take away from Arizona State's play in the secondary from this matchup? Well, I thought ASU did a good job as the field got smaller. When, once NAU got to the 20 or 30-yard line, the the boundary was, was harder for them to break through to get touchdowns, and they didn't uh, they weren't able to do that. And the reason for that, as you said, is because they were good at the bigger plays and they weren't as good when they had to make intermediate type plays or run the ball successfully to score. And so that's a good sign for the ASU defense, but it also uh, alerts you to what the biggest challenges already were and remain, and that's the secondary giving up big plays. Todd Graham again mentioned it. He said we were in cover three and we gave up a couple big shots down the field. That's something that we have worked all year to try to avoid. TJ Rushing, the secondary coach, said that it makes him really angry when he sees guys giving up plays behind him. That's an emphasis. Uh, and we saw both Deshavon Hayes and Kareem Orr get lost in coverage a couple times. I think Hayes in particular down the field when he seemed to have pretty good coverage but mm-hmm. just lost awareness of where the guy was. And we saw a few plays in which uh, Chad Adams wasn't able to get to a spot to be able to be involved on making a play or even Armand Perry wasn't able to get on a, on a, a farther run to get to, to get to a spot. And that's where you have to think about is the cover three uh, going to work for them long term with – 
basically your corners having to hold up in one-on-one on on deep fades. One thing that I do want to mention, that 87-yard touchdown was over the head of Bryson Eccles, the Texas grad transfer for Arizona State, who did not get the start, but did did see playing time with the ones, so Arizona State still keeping that kind of competition going between Gump Hayes and Eccles. But to your point of Gump Hayes being close in coverage, Kareem Orr being close in coverage, and not having the ball skills to make plays, I think... The tendency is to look at this game and say, oh, same old Arizona State from last year. It's cornerbacks can't make plays. They're getting beat down the field. A lot of times, especially for Hayes, he's in position. He just doesn't have the experience to make plays because he's only played corner for one season. So I think there is a lot of room for growth there as he becomes more comfortable seeing receivers in live game situations. Some players, it never comes. But some players who do have the athleticism and they're in the right spot, eventually they'll be able to use their hands more successfully. So much of that is feel-based. It's just kind of having enough reps to understand what's happening at the end of the play because he would be in phase running with someone and then at the very conclusion before the ball's arrival, he would kind of get where is it at, what's going mm-hmm. on here. And that just takes a lot of experience. The, the challenge, of course, is that in Eccles, who you mentioned as getting beat uh, previously, he's a senior, Hayes is a senior, and then your other guys who are really uh, legitimate options there are either junior college transfers who haven't really played, and Maurice Chandler, or true freshmen like a Robbie Robinson or a Chase Lucas who you would probably ideally want to preserve his red shirt. So that's our takeaways from the offensive and the defensive side of the ball. Still some other takeaways to get to from this game, and one that we absolutely have to touch on is ASU burning the red shirts of Cole Cabral and Kyle Williams. Obviously, there's a need to put Nikhil Harry on the field. There's a need to put Robbie Robinson on the field. But Cole Cabral was out there long snapping on field goals, and then he saw some time with the second-team offense. And Kyle Williams was running down on kickoffs when Zane Gonzalez is the best kicker in terms of touchbacks in the country. Our understanding is that Mitchell Fabroni was injured early in the summer, and they knew for several months that they were facing this dilemma of having to find a snapper. And they had a walk-on snapper that they felt comfortable with in punts, but then when you have field goals and, and PATs and you need a little bit more heft uh, at that A-gap, they decided to go with Cabral. I think if you can't teach someone to short snap in a matter of a couple months among all the people on your team, including centers, who have to be able to snap the ball back anyways – that's really glaring flaw. And uh, we've seen other schools in the country open up their kicking competition school-wide to students and then find someone to go out there and be your field goal kicker. That is a much bigger responsibility than finding someone to short snap. And so I think it's just really unfortunate and a shame and, and really a mistake that you're playing Cole Cabral particularly in light of what I think we agree, Kerry, is Cabral being one of the best overall prospects on your roster. His athleticism for his size is terrific. The way that he has flexibility and scheme versatility to be able to play center all the way out to left tackle. Right now, okay, yeah, he's a freshman. The fourth or fifth year of Cole Cabral, you're really going to wish that you had that extra year. It's not the most perfect comparison, but the situation that I see in Cole Cabral is last season, Clemson had a new offensive line with with four new starters 
and they lost their starting left tackle, who was their only returner. And Joe Dahl, a true freshman, came in and played. And, and Dahl was headed for a redshirt year, but looked great physically. And Cabral, to me, is that same type of player. You could redshirt him, and then next year, he takes over and starts for four seasons at left tackle for you, or three if he goes pro, because he really has some of the best pro potential on this team. And let's keep in mind that ASU's had a hard time getting offensive tackles who are really good and can play there for a few years. They had to move Jamil Douglas from guard to tackle. Now they're playing Zach Robertson at tackle, who's probably more of a guard. Uh, They've had uh, a a series of players. Evan Finkenberg was probably more of a guard that they ended up playing at tackle for a few years. It's very hard to get quality offensive tackles at this level to be successful. And one year of that is important. And so that's an issue. And then we didn't talk yet about Kyle Williams, which just to me was a complete and utter head scratcher. Um, you have in Zane Gonzalez, the number one kicker nationally in touchback percentage. And especially at Sun Devil Seating, where you know almost every single time the ball is going out of the back of the end zone, Kyle Williams is there as a gunner just running down on a jog, playing and burning his red shirt. And then you use him at, with the second team at field side safety. Well, you don't need him. The game's a 30-point game at that point, and he's out there. He's only practiced the position for two weeks. It's a sign, in my estimation, of some uh, transparent concern that Todd Graham has about his secondary personnel that's then being uh, indicated by trying to get some guys uh, reps who may end up being needed in an emergency way. And this is not the first time this has happened. It happens to every program every year. But last season, J.J. Wilson and Kalen Thomas had their red shirts burned for special teams purposes. I mean, at some point, that has to be evaluated. Yeah, I mean, those two guys are, are are two really good players, too. I'm sure there's a really good chance that Kalen Thomas and J.J. Wilson end up being multiple-year starters for ASU, the way the roster is setting up. Kyle Williams, given that in the earlier on in camp, he looked like he might be the number two slot receiver. And so you're going to be losing uh, Tim White after this year. It's just very – I understand coaches are concerned about winning now because they might not even be around in four or five years if they don't win now. And so I respect that. I get that. But for ASU and from a, a player development standpoint and being able to have key fifth-year seniors on your roster, which which tend to make up your better teams when you have those guys, it, that's a that's a hit, not, not having uh, redshirt years for Cabral and, Cabral and Kyle Williams. Last takeaway from this game before we move on to talk a little bit about Texas Tech, who are some of the players that we haven't talked about who've emerged in your, in your mind as potential playmakers for ASU? Number one, right off the top, Rennell Wren, absolutely. It's a guy who has all the physical talent in the world, and it's just a matter of getting – Better pad level, especially when he moves inside a defensive tackle, as they did with him. Uh, but 6'5", 290-some-odd pounds, uh, probably the strongest guy on the team, pound-for-pound, uh, pound, is squat 600 pounds, just crazy natural ability, and it's now starting to show up on the football field. This is only a third-year sophomore. It's someone who absolutely has a chance to be able to play at the NFL level if he keeps on this progression. Early in the game, he had probably four tackles. Mm-hmm. Two uh, tackles for loss. Uh, yeah, he had a couple of really nice tackles for loss. And so he is really building into a guy that I think is going to be an impressive player down the road. Even though Jalen Harvey wasn't involved a lot in the in the passing game, we talked about him as a blocker. I thought that was like super important to see that development from him. Uh, and then 
What do you think, Carrie? A couple other guys that maybe stood out to you? The number one for me was Nikhil Harry. I, I think that he showed so much impressive potential, not only as a receiver, but as a blocker, just like Jalen Harvey. He's definitely an option in that category. And then when he did catch the ball, I thought that he was relentless with his leg drive, which is something that... I, I honestly didn't anticipate from a player like Harry, who's known for his ability to go up, catch the ball, make make those type of plays. But if you're able to drag defenders for two, three, four extra yards, that can make a huge difference. And when he did that early on in the game, when ASU targeted him, there was one uh, just curl route, stop route that really stood out to me where he turned his body and just rumbled forward. And, and I just don't think you're going to have too many freshmen around the country who are able to do that. I liked his competitive disposition a lot when he was at Chandler. Uh, he didn't really show it in this game because they didn't use him in that way, but his ability to fight for 50-50 balls and go up and high point the ball while draped uh, really stood out to me uh, locally watching him a number of times, and I think that he's just poised to have a great career. So mixed results for ASU. Obviously, Todd Graham satisfied with a 44-13 to victory over NAU. Sun Devils move to 1-0. They'll take on Texas Tech this week. But before we talk about that game, let's give a quick roundup of the Pac-12. I know you, taught, you were able to watch a few different games this weekend. I was as well. Any teams that stood out to you, players that stood out to you worth mentioning? I thought Colorado really was impressive. Uh, the coaching there is good. That's something else that we've I heard ASU's coaches talk about the challenge of preparing for Colorado and Shea Field. Yeah, Shea probably Fields. one of the best receivers in the Pac-12. It's interesting because USC had Shea Fields and then released him thinking that he wasn't that good. I, I got a chance to watch him in the Semper Fi game a few years ago, a couple years ago. and He was just electric, and I was like, USC made a mistake here. And now it looks like that's bearing out to be true. And, of course, USC is always going to have good receiver talent. But, nonetheless, you don't ever want to have to uh, – not get a guy like a Shea Fields if you if you have him already in the fold. So and then and then USC struggles were very interesting. I I really felt like you can't replicate Alabama's physicality uh, preparing for a first game of the season, and then their uh, new defense uh, is um, going to take some time to develop. It's a three-four. It's a complicated scheme with a defensive coordinator who's uh, coached for the Cardinals in the past, and I don't know that with Clancy Pendergast that's going to happen in year one. That's probably more of a year two, year three thing where you finally kind of get everything assimilated. Of course, Clay Helton's a, a different play caller than you. Yeah, so there's a lot of things that you got to get on the same page there. Uh, Washington State losing <laughs> to an, another FCS opponent. It's like I remember like people making fun of them a year ago because Portland they, State because they lost to Portland State and then they went on and had a really good season. So it's almost like it's almost kind of unpredictable what you think you're going to see from them. But everyone thought they would just come out and be like gangbusters at the outset of the season, and it didn't happen. And a lot of people are going to probably talk about Josh Rosen and UCLA's offense just not really looking good at Texas A&M. I happen to think that that's a really tough team athletically to prepare for, especially in that environment. New defensive coordinator at Texas A&M as well, I believe. So that's something to keep an eye on, as well as new offensive coordinator at UCLA. So UCLA didn't come on until the final six minutes of that game. But when when the, the Bruins did, they looked pretty good at the end. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, they just maybe needed to get into a rhythm. I think when you get a home game and you're able to get into your own environment, that's going to help them sort of come together. Uh, we didn't talk about a bunch of other teams, obviously, in the Pac-12 that played. I thought Utah has good line play. Their athletic skill is not great, but I think they'll be able to stay in games. Arizona losing to BYU and not having any rushing attack uh, doing so, plus their defensive line seems a little bit suspect mm -hmm. at this stage. Um 
And then uh, what other games did you uh, see? Washington was a big standout team to me because right. people, especially on the Devil's Sanctuary board, have been torn over whether Chris Peterson and the Huskies deserve the hype that they've received. Right. And I, I've kind of been in the corner of Washington just because I think Chris Peterson has always gotten the most out of his players. Schematically, he puts them in great positions to play. I like him as a coach. And Jake Browning looked good throwing the ball. John Ross is back as a receiver. Great speed. That defense, you know it's going to be physical. So Washington definitely put teams on notice in week one. Buda Baker, one of the best oh, players yeah. in the Pac-12 overall as a defensive back who, if he p- came on and played receiver, he could be a two-way type of a guy who on a really good team would even maybe be a Heisman candidate. That's not going to happen probably at Washington, but he's that level of an athlete. In the last two teams I watched, Stanford, Christian McCaffrey looked great as always. That's to be expected. Hard to get a gauge on Kansas State early in the season. They're a team that because they traditionally have so many junior college players don't peak until later on. And then I didn't watch any of the game at all, but I was surprised by the score of Oregon State, Minnesota, just because some people had Minnesota winning its division in the Big Ten, and Oregon State put up a great fight. I think the advantage that Oregon State has is that those Big Ten teams aren't quite as athletic. They're more physical. And so I think that that can be moderated to some degree in a game like that. But I still think at the end of the day, Oregon State ends up at or near the bottom of the Pac-12 North. Yeah, definitely. That Pac-12 North is going to be a solid, solid division uh, and probably much better than the South this season. Agree on that. So with that, we'll move forward and talk a little bit about Texas Tech later on in the week on our Sun Devil Source premium report. We'll go very in-depth with our analysis of Very. Texas Tech. We'll have everything on Patrick Mahomes and that everything. offense. But right now, let's just give kind of a first look at the Red Raiders. 69-17 win over Stephen F. Austin. And we know a lot about Texas Tech because it's a program that has not changed its offense since Mike Leach got there in 2000. Yeah, and that's... Uh that you mentioned Mike Leach is kind of interesting because we've seen last year ASU had a hard time with the air raid style and they really have under Todd Graham since they've been there. ASU tends to vacate the middle of the field and play a lot of coverage and that puts guys on islands. They rely so heavily on individual solo tackles to bring down receivers. If you don't make those plays, you have guys running wild through your secondary. Uh, and so the, the contrast uh, in styles of ASU defensively this year with Armand Perry maybe being more of a headhunter over the middle of the field on uh, some of those cover three looks and whether they use him in that type of a capacity, that's one of the things that we're going to be looking at a lot more uh, as we study this game. And really just how the secondary overall holds up against this type of a test. Yes, Texas Tech was playing Stephen F. Austin, but Mahomes accounted for 400 yards of offense by himself in the first half, and I think they had something like eight straight scores at one point. I mean, this is an offense that it's not just your traditional Texas Tech offense. It's being engineered by a quarterback who has a lot of pro potential, which is atypical of Texas Tech. And mobility and his ability to make plays happen after things break down makes this a particularly challenging opponent because most of these air raid quarterbacks are just pocket guys and you're just going to see them and if something's not open they're just going to throw the ball away or they're going to scramble around and throw it the ability for Mahone to to escape vertically through the pocket be able to uh, put you into some challenging situations of how you decide to defend that with at the linebacker level do you spy him do you drop those guys into zone do you let those guys handle man coverage but then maybe you don't have Mahone all those things are more the nuanced uh, challenges that we'll try to be more predictive on in the premium podcast so Arizona State played Texas Tech recently in the bowl game the quarterback was Davis Webb who's now up at California we'll see him in two weeks 
How did ASU defend Texas Tech in that game in terms of its defensive pressure? Well, te- the, typically, ASU's always been uh, ultra-aggressive, and when Webb played in that game, Todd Graham just sent the house. He just felt like, okay, this is a new quarterback. We're going to try to keep him unsettled in the pocket, make him make some mistakes. I think it was the opposite of what they needed to do. The way that you make a young quarterback make mistakes is confuse his eyes, and you show blitz, and you drop guys back. You play zone coverages. That's how Manny Wilkins threw an interception. That's how quarterbacks make mistakes, in my opinion, when they're young, especially when they see something that's different from what they expect to see. And so are they going to show him one picture and do something different? Are they going to mix things up to where they're starting to zone drop guys that weren't uh, expected to see? I think those are some of the things. But this is a more experienced quarterback than what Webb was at the time. And so I don't think that he's going to make any of these rookie mistakes. It's going to be very challenging. Now, we won't offer our predictions until we've had much more opportunity to watch Texas Tech's offense function under Mahomes until later on this week in that premium podcast. But what can ASU hope to limit Texas Tech to? What's what's a good point total if you're Arizona State's defense to shoot for? Um, <laughs> no, I would say probably 40 points. I mean, I don't think you're winning this game unless you score 40 points if you're ASU. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, a good outcome if you're ASU is you maybe score like 41, 42 points and Texas Tech has 38 or 35 points. That would be a remarkable accomplishment. I think that's going to be hard to do just given the way that these games kind of end up becoming a track meet. Uh, and I think early on, one of the keys is is just trying to make uh, – they're not going to they're not going to run the ball that much, but to even make them more one dimensional, so that then you can kind of ease up if you want to drop eight guys or bring pressure and keep your defense more more varied. Well, we could be in for a four and a half five hour classic, much in the uh, same fashion as Notre Dame in Texas a night ago. But uh, that will do it for our first podcast of the regular season. Well, we'll see. It's a seven o'clock start. I'd like to get out of the press box well, before maybe 2:30. not for us, but, but fans <laughs> would probably like it. Yeah. Yeah, it, it could be a really, really intriguing matchup where fans learn a lot about Arizona State over the course of the season. So I think that that's, that's fun in that regard. Yeah, I think they'll like it. It'll get, get a lot of points on the board and enjoy the new stadium. Well, that will do it for the Sun Devil Source Report podcast from week one. Arizona State getting ready for Texas Tech this week. We'll have much more content throughout the week on sundevilsource.com. And stay tuned for our Sun Devil Source Premium Report podcast, which will come out later on this week. For publisher Chris Cartman, I'm Kerry Crowley. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast.